Support for Design Matters comes from Adobe Portfolio. With Portfolio, which comes free with any Adobe Creative Cloud plan, you can quickly and simply build a website to showcase your creative work so you can get back to doing what you do best. Start today at myportfolio.com slash designmatters. Proceeds from Adobe Portfolio support of this podcast will go into a student scholarship for the School of Visual Arts Master's in Branding program. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. This episode of Design Matters is part of a series featuring new voices in design, and Debbie Millman talks with Lana Porter about branding for millennials. It's really about how can it integrate itself into my life in a way that feels organic, but also that feels genuine. Here's Debbie Millman. Lana Z. Porter is a designer, writer, and researcher who is a senior creative at Vice Media. Vice, of course, has been wildly successful with younger audiences, especially among men, and Lana has been involved in efforts to de-dude it a bit. Among other things, she develops branded content for Broadly, Vice's female-focused channel. One of the curiosities in her career so far is that she comes to design from cultural anthropology. Lana Porter, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. Lana, I understand that when you were about 12 or 13, your friends decided that you should maybe think about plucking your eyebrows because they were kind of shaped funny and it might help you look less weird. Did you really <laughs> look weird or was it your friends being mean? I think they were just being mean. But you did indeed go home that day, search in the bathroom until you found the pair of tweezers your family kept on hand in case of splinters and began the painful process of follicular maintenance, as you've put it, that you've had to keep up with ever since. It's true. Did this damage you? It didn't damage me, but I think that that passage from a piece that I wrote is about how we remember certain things that have happened in our lives. And that was a a negative memory that was recalled while washing dishes on a gray day with hot water and steam coming out of the sink and thinking, I remember that time in the hot tub when those girls told me that I should pluck my eyebrows to look less weird and thinking, huh, I didn't even know that was a thing people did. But the reason for that anecdote is really about the nature of memory and sort of the sensory triggers that bring us back into certain moments of time. And we're going to talk a lot about that. I want to talk a little bit more about your origins. You grew up in Massachusetts, where your father is a professor in the Harvard Business School, and your mother founded the Boston Book Festival. Did you grow up in a very left-brain versus right-brain household? A little bit. My dad is a very rational, thoughtful, sort of scientific method-driven person. And my mother is much more driven by the literary arts and storytelling. Um, She particularly has a fondness for poetry and children's literature. There was certainly a bit of an offsetting happening. Your dad is the Bishop William Lawrence University professor at the Harvard Business School. And in the book, 
Understanding Michael Porter, your dad, author Joan Magretta states, Michael Porter is the most cited scholar in economics and business, and his frameworks have become the foundation of the strategy field. I concur. His book on competition is one of the seminal business books of our time, and his Harvard Business School article, The Five Competitive Forces That Shape Strategy, is pretty much the holy grail in the branding business and in the branding studio where we are today. What was it like growing up with two such prominent and successful people, Lana? Academic achievement was certainly considered very important, and yet, at the same time, I was always kind of doing my own thing and just, you know, especially in the arts and theater and um, sports. And so both of my parents just kind of let me do that, let me do me. I think more than anything, it fostered a very like competitive, very ambitious personality, which has carried through in everything that I do. So you went to the University of Pennsylvania, where you got a Bachelor of Arts degree in cultural anthropology, but also minored in theater arts. What did you think at that point you wanted to do when you graduated? I wasn't sure. I thought perhaps academia. For me, anthropology was really an awakening intellectually, understanding that this was a discipline that had such a wide breadth of topics and cultural experiences. So I thought probably academia or some kind of research certainly not theater. You describe ethnography as the act of deriving meaning from and thickly describing lived life. What do you mean by thickly describing lived life? Thick description is a phrase coined by Clifford Geertz, who's an anthropologist whose work is pretty seminal and very was very meaningful to me when I was first learning about the discipline. And so thick description or thickly describing is really how the art of ethnography is is writing everything. It's not leaving anything out. In that sense, it becomes thick. It becomes a true record of what you as an ethnographer have experienced, have sensed, have perceived through your interactions with the people that you're studying. But it's not empirical data necessarily. It's still something that you're reporting on. Absolutely. And I think description kind of says it all. You know, it's it's your interpretation of events. And I think one of the things with anthropology is, you know, the idea of objectivity. Uh, Peter Gallison, I think, has has this quote, you know, objectivity is romantic. See, I think subjectivity is romantic. How is objectivity? Objectivity would be antiseptic in many ways. Well, right. I, I think he's saying objectivity is a dream. Oh, you know, okay. it's not something that really can exist, especially when applied to something like anthropology, where it's you as an individual with all your experiences and baggage coming to the table and then observing and interacting with people and then drawing some sort of conclusion based on on that experience. When you were at UPenn, you had a number of impressive internships. One was as an anthropologist, a local anthropologist for The New York Times. And you spent five weeks conducting ethnographic fieldwork on the streets of Fort Greene and Clinton Hill. What kind of work were you doing and, and why? Why those two neighborhoods? I was planning my thesis research for my undergraduate thesis at Penn, and I knew I wanted to do it on digital technology or the Internet in some way. And around that time, it was, I think, March of 2008, the New York Times decided to start a new blog called The Local, and they chose Fort Greene and Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, as one conjoined set of neighborhoods. 
and I think a, a neighborhood in New Jersey as their pilots. And I thought, here it is. You know, this is my chance to really understand how um, an online representation of an offline space interacts with that space. I, I don't really know how I did it. I emailed some random people at the Times and said, hey, I'm this I'm student at Penn and I'm doing this project. And they let me come on as an intern. Nice. I lucked out. Well done. <laughs> and yeah, and just managed to kind of shadow one of the main bloggers, sort of understand how the blog was being curated, put together, following him out on the street, finding stories, and then also standing on the street corners and just talking to anybody who would talk to me. You went to work after you graduated at a company called Radical Media. How did you get that job and what did you do there? That was a, a friend of a friend kind of situation. Managed to start as an intern um, or as a researcher, I guess I was. I was in the design and digital group doing all kinds of projects. But at the time, Conservation International came along and said, we want to make this thing called the Ocean Health Index. And so my job really became working with the data scientists and with the creators of the index to understand how to build this framework and then put it online as a resource for average people, for educators, policymakers, scientists. You worked at Radical Media for several years. What was the biggest thing you learned there? Well, there were a couple, but how to work collaboratively with other people on creative projects. As an anthropology major, that's not really something that you do. Being at Radical, being amongst designers and producers and animators and um, people with all of these different skills and working as a team to put something together, that was really, for me, the transformation from, you know, words are my medium to there are so many other ways to express ideas that ultimately sent me off to graduate school to kind of change careers. And what made you decide to go to the Royal College of Art? A friend in a bar. Lots of friends influence <laughs> your choices in life, Lana. It's good to know. <laughs> um, you know, I knew that I wanted to pursue a graduate degree. I knew I wanted to be in design of some sort. But I, I wasn't, you know, limiting myself too much because I thought, you know, who's going to accept me at a design program? I have basically no experience. I remember getting a drink with a good friend of mine who used to be a colleague at Radical. And he said, oh, I heard there's this kind of crazy program at the RCA um, where you get to kind of speculate about possible futures. And I kind of said, oh, that, that sounds kind of crazy and weird. And sure, I'll, I'll apply. And I sort of just put it together and sent it off. And that's where I ended up going. You wrote a remarkable piece titled Ethnographies of the Imagination. And in the article, you state the following. In the fall of 2012, I moved from New York City to London to attend the master's program in design interactions at the Royal College of Art. Having previously studied cultural anthropology with a focus on science and technology, I feared that my highly rational academic orientation might get in the way of the ability to think the kinds of creative thoughts that would be expected of me. My beliefs about the world had been governed by reason, derived from ordered observations and direct experiences. And from what I could tell, design school was going to require a little more imagination. What was this transition like for you? Did it take you a while to begin to think like a designer? Absolutely. It was insane, completely insane. It was totally transformational. It was, you know, the definition of fish out of water. The methodology of this program is about how to essentially suspend disbelief and imagine that anything is possible and 
use that as a lens through which to envision possible futures. You've said that to understand how the world could be different, we must overcome the rational pull toward the probable or simply the plausible and open ourselves up to the possible. And I was really fascinated by the notion that we as a species seem to have this pull toward the probable. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about where that comes from. Is it hardwired into us? Is it socialized? Where do we where do we learn how to be pulled toward the probable? It's really a matter of the way that our brains are wired. So we form patterns through the experiences that we have in life, and our experiences become memories. Everything that we've ever done and seen and experienced, somewhere in there is, is a memory. And the more that you do something, the more easy it is to recall that thing. When we navigate the world, I think we're so accustomed to trying to pick out the familiar in the things that we see around us, the things that we kind of know that we've seen already. And I think that is fundamentally a challenge to creating new thought. So if you're trying to imagine something new, but everything you see around you, you're constantly trying to compute against something that you've already seen or experienced, it makes it really hard to sort of circumvent that cycle. So you have to break through existing patterns of cognition. Absolutely. In order to even allow yourself to consider something that you haven't considered before. Right. That's really hard. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you are currently working at Vice as a senior creative. What does that mean? What do you do there? I work with the creative team at Vice uh, on the digital side of the business, primarily working on branded and sponsored content. So what that means is we are kind of, in some sense, an intersection between editorial and advertising. Talk about some of the more recent projects that you've done at Vice. Recently, we finished a project with Vaseline, the Vaseline Healing Project, which is an initiative that they have to help people on the front lines in disaster-stricken spaces or in war zones, refugees. Um, They provide skin care to those people in need. And so they came to us with physical healing as their theme. And what we ended up doing with them was creating a 15-minute documentary piece about a voodoo healer in Haiti, a woman who sort of single-handedly brought in her community after the earthquake and helped to allow them to recover by giving them work, by giving them a place to stay, and also through her spiritual guidance through voodoo. That piece was very special and loosely associated with the idea of physical healing. And rather than physical healing, it's spiritual healing. We also created, as a part of that piece, uh, a five-minute virtual reality documentary that actually takes you into a voodoo ceremony. The goal of the piece really was to see how alternative healing methods like voodoo, like spiritual healing, can really play a huge role in disaster relief. And then in addition to those two pieces, we created two 30-second more commercial spots that actually document what the Vaseline Healing Project is doing on the ground. So with them, we ended up creating this sort of suite of content that all ladders up to this idea of healing, but expresses it in very different ways, and some, some with the brand integrated and some without. Where do you foresee 
this world of content moving in the future? The approach that we take and the thing that I observe all the time is really a turn away from formal content in in a sense. So 25, 30, 40 minute documentary pieces, rather looking at sort of more endemically created content. So giving voices to people who maybe would never have been considered content creators, enrolling them in the process of creation. So we do that a lot at Vice. Um, We identify young, cool people who are telling stories in interesting ways. The amount of time that people spend watching things, it's still huge, but the number of minutes is decreasing. So micro content, things that are super shareable, things that really take advantage of the way people consume media now, which is largely on mobile. So it's smaller and it's less formal. One of the things that I find so interesting about it is how less hitting you over the head it is. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if this content is benefiting the brand more by association than by specific messaging about efficacy. Mm -hmm. Sure. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think especially advice, Shane Smith, our CEO, constantly says, you know, young people have been marketed to their entire lives. And so we are the best bullshit detectors in history. So the solution, then, as he always famously says, is don't bullshit. Um, And I think that's the approach that we take, generally speaking, is just tell interesting stories, tell stories that people give a shit about, and they will come. If a brand is coming and saying, you know, buy this now because X, Y, Z, People are like, you know, it doesn't, they're done yeah, it doesn't They've mean anything to them. They've heard this for 50 years. And Absolutely. It no longer has any, any real resonance. Right. And so it's really what are brands doing in a cultural space that resonates with me? Are they facilitating crazy new parties that allow emerging musicians to really show their stuff? It's really about how can it integrate itself into my life in a way that feels organic, but also that feels genuine. And if it doesn't feel real, it doesn't feel genuine, then we're just turn off. I had a conversation with somebody this morning where um, they asked me, what do brands need to do now to succeed? (laughs) And I said, it's not about creating a new form or a new flavor. It's about how do you make a difference in somebody's life? Mm -hmm. And I think that if brands can provide meaning beyond what is profitable for them, and more what is beneficial to whoever is engaging, we'll be in a lot better place as a culture. Absolutely. And I think that also drives really well with people of the millennial generation are really driven by purpose. And more and more brands need to show that they're in it for some larger purpose than profit. I think it's great that that's where things are going. And I think, you know, we can all do more to try to become the checks and balances that push brands in that direction. Lana Porter, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Thank you very much for having me. You can learn more about Lana Porter at lanazporter.com and on Behance at Lana Z. Porter. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Support for Design Matters comes from Adobe Portfolio. 
With Portfolio, which comes free with any Adobe Creative Cloud plan, you can quickly and simply build a website to showcase your creative work so you can get back to doing what you do best. Start today at myportfolio.com slash design matters. Proceeds from Adobe Portfolio support of this podcast will go into a student scholarship for the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance from Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes store.